Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you'll hear from a panel of expert speakers. We'll allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Norma, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Workshop, Living with Chronic Myelogenous Leukemia, or CML. And we are really very fortunate to have all of you on the call today. Um, and this program today is supported by Novartis Oncology and Takeda Oncology. And I really want to thank them for their support of the program. Uh, today's program is actually for so many of you on the call. We have over 253 participants on the call today. And you come from all over the United States. You come from both urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities. And we also happen to have today on the call um, international participants from Australia, Canada, India, Switzerland, and the United Kingdom. So it's a bit of a global call as well. And it's a really um, a pleasure that you've all chosen to spend this next hour with us to learn more about CML, uh, chronic myelogenous leukemia. We have the best of the best speakers, and they're going to begin by introducing our first speaker, and our first speaker is Dr. Michael Morrow. Dr. Morrow is leader, Myeloproliferative Neoplasms Program, member Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, Professor Weill Cornell Medicine. And Dr. Morrow will be addressing an overview of chronic myelogenous leukemia, or CML, in the context of COVID-19, current standard of care, and communicating with the healthcare team about quality of life concerns during your telemedicine, telehealth appointments. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Morrow. Uh, thank you, Carolyn. <clears throat> thank you, everyone, for uh, joining us today. I think um, increasingly the world's been a, one of, of teleconferences and webinars and Zoom calls. So thank you for putting up with another. Um, um, hopefully, but hopefully this will be an hour well spent, um, but one um, listening in. Um, again, I want to thank Cancer Care for inviting me and I'm in such great company with my colleagues, which will um, speak after me. But um, my job in the next few minutes is to talk about a few topics and Probably the one that's been the most pressing is um, um, how do we view COVID-19 uh, and CML happening together? So how to manage CML uh, in the year of COVID-19? Um, or what what is the standard of care? How how have anything how has anything changed? And then also um, communicating as we practice medicine and receive medical treatments by a different means. Um, I've just myself been through a clinic um, from since this morning um, where I was on the phone and, and with video conferencing with my patients rather than see them in person. Let me start with talking about an overview of CML in the current era. So the good news I can say, and I think um, all of us can share our thoughts, is that CML as a chronic leukemia, which is still highly treatable and we hope to be functionally curable with oral medications, which most patients are able to have delivered out of hospital, with uh, very manageable side effects and hopefully minimal side effects, um, a, a condition where surveillance, blood testing, and monitoring can um, mostly be done by uh, simple blood draws. Um, we have a very manageable situation where I'm hopeful that the care of CML patients, the trajectory um, of success in CML, um, and the day-to-day -day management of CML hasn't changed as much as um, other conditions. Now, that's um, assuming the best of the best. I think in different parts of the world, I know we have folks from all over the world and, um, or many parts of the world in addition to the United States, I think other healthcare systems have been stressed more than others. Other states have been stressed more than others. I'm from New York, and um, we had tremendous stress to the point of where our hospital was, um, you know, left with uh, managing cancer patients as best we could and limiting what needed to be done electively and just focusing on on the problem at hand, which is the management of COVID-19. We've since emerged, um, but <clears throat> the the um, the good news is I think CML hasn't changed. I think um, if one needs information, there are there are uh, resources, there are guidelines. For one, uh, I was uh, glad to help with the American Society of Hematology to write some guidelines or some FAQs, frequently asked questions about uh, what to do during what to do with CML during the COVID-19 pandemic with the typical questions one might ask. 
Do we need to change our monitoring? Do we need to change medications? Should we modify our regimen? Is there anything we should think about differently? Um, again, we can all share thoughts on this and maybe during the Q&A as well. Probably the only thing that stood out in those recommendations were that, in general, most medications should have been continued. Monitoring uh, would continue as best possible. Um, my personal discussion with my patients was to make sure that we um, we listened to each other and we understood that anxiety and concern about the healthcare system or simply uh, access in the healthcare system. In New York City, for example, you know, getting on a subway or a train or a bus to get to a clinic to have a blood draw in a crowded, or at least what one might have remembered as being a crowded place, could be very concerning. So just listening to each other and listening to my patients and, and having hopefully them listen to my advice, you know, we came to a, a happy medium where we got as much as we could done as safely as we possibly could and we should continue in that vein. Um, so what I'm saying is that blood tests shouldn't um, cease, they shouldn't be modified. We should still target the same monitoring we would have done always. A typical patient with, with CML disease have regular molecular tests from the from the blood. Um, you know, one, one trick there is that we do have um, some places have the ability, for example, to send a kit to someone's home and they can have their blood drawn locally. Um, rather than come to a major healthcare center or a major city. So that's a real plus. So now's the time to think outside the box um, and be creative, listen to each other, and and try to come up with solutions and, and um, recognize um, limitations some people have, whether it's financial or personal or manage the anxiety of, of, of uh, the, what's upon us, but also still be as successful as we can with our CML treatment schema. The standard of care for CML, how has that changed? It hasn't. Uh, medications remain the same. We have excellent choices. We have four medications approved in the frontline setting. We have five medicines in total, and these are the oral tyrosine kinase inhibitors. Highly effective, different medicines for different scenarios. Again, with a you know a, a, a quite a an option at diagnosis, um, and the ability to switch between medications for response or side effect issues. Um, medications for uh, select cases of resistance or mutations, things that can change in the leukemia um, that may warrant uh, particularly the, the fifth uh, drug perhaps on the list or the drug that's um, known to be effective in certain scenarios of selective resistance or mutations, uh, panantinib. Um, we have novel agents moving through development. So research has slowed down and has been modified to a degree, but I can tell you um, with encouragement and hope that CML clinical trials have not stopped or ceased or, or been um, uh, shelved. They've just been modified to help, and patients have continued on experimental therapies. Again, thinking outside of the box, having medicines shipped rather than picked up in person, having remote visits, uh, telehealth visits when, when in-person visits weren't safe or weren't the best uh, practice at the time. So um, the standard of care remains the same. In the last few moments, let me talk about communication and, and with your healthcare team and and particularly quality of life, um, I just want to emphasize a point I was trying to make earlier in that I think now is the most important time for us to be um, good human beings and good listeners and, 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 and have a lot of patience because there's a lot of things happening, a lot of stress, anxiety, whether it's financial, emotional, personal losses, job losses, family member losses, uh, great uncertainty about the future, although things seem better, but there's still a lot of uncertainty and still a lot of healing that has to take place. So no better place than the healthcare team to uh, to make sure we at least acknowledge that. Uh, there may be different specialists and resources that may be needed to manage anxiety and depression, which I tell my patients is probably expected and quite normal. I always joke and say that anyone, if you ask them, how are you doing, they say they're fine, they're probably lying. Because most of us have something on our plate that's not right, it's not different, that we can't fix it, we can't make it right just yet. Uh, but the healthcare team on the telehealth call should be as close as it gets to an in-person visit as possible. I view telehealth as a tool that was um, emerging and was to be a great option in medicine to allow people the flexibility of connecting with their doctors and their healthcare team, nurses, practitioners, everyone, um, without the necessity of being there in person and sometimes the strain and the stress of that, because many things could be done in that mode. It was thrust upon us and became the default standard because of the concern over the pandemic. Now, we're, now it's our job to figure out how do we use it best. And believe me, the healthcare system is stepping up to the plate as our insurance carriers, and it has become a widespread uh, use tool and can be used effectively. I find that particularly in CML, it's, um, we're quite able to manage um, many of the questions and the discussions we have. 
I had a consultation this morning for a newly diagnosed patient with CML, and I'm, I hope I was able to deliver most of the information I would have had had I sat with her in person, although I couldn't examine and couldn't have that human connection of human touch. We need to be patient and kind of learn how to operate in, the, in this new world and keep each other safe, but also still, as I said, to be good listeners and, and, and uh, use, use these technologies um, in a way where it's as close to human contact and human uh, in-person visits as possible. So when you're on a telehealth call, same rules apply as when you're in person. Try to take notes. Um, try to not have uh, distractions, much like um, students are told when they're taking their online classes. Um, and um, it's okay to have family members there. Um, if an errant cat or dog uh, passes by or a child's crying, that's okay. We're all humans. We understand that. Uh, don't worry about that. But just like you were in person and where you may be less distracted, it's a little bit more of a challenge with telehealth. Um, you know, we're all, sometimes we're battling poor connections and, and you know, uh, too many things going on. But So try to focus. Try to have your questions answered. Um, uh, the good news about telehealth is it offers some flexibility uh, for timing of, of, of uh, calls, and they can be rescheduled a lot easier than an in-person appointment. But I think they can be used effectively, just like an in-person visit. And, um, again, since it's not an in-person visit and there's not as much um, direct connection, communication um, is, is, is so important. So um, if that means making sure you have an advocate with you to help answer questions or ask questions without being, you know, um, kind of overdoing it on the call, I think that's it, it sometimes can be challenging if there's people asking questions all at once, but um, that, that's fine, I think, from the, from our provider side. We don't mind that. And um, it um, I think it's worked out well, and I think it's going to have a place in the future. And I've been telling all of my patients that I hope it's going to be a decision between them and I about how we use that. So I don't want people to feel like they're in FaceTime forever um, with my doctors, and I'm never going to have another doctor see me again because of COVID-19. That's definitely not the case. We just need to uh, be patient and work on this. And I'm going to stop there because I don't want to take up too much more time and say that things are seemingly doing okay and quite well in CML in the era of COVID-19 um, when, when it comes to overview standard of care and, and health healthcare via telehealth is probably here to stay. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Moore. That was really outstanding. Just a wonderful presentation, a wonderful way to start the program. And uh, thank you. And I'm sure there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. Thank you so much. And our next speaker is Dr. Neil Shah. Dr. Shah is the Edward S. Gino Distinguished Professor in Hematology Oncology, Director, UCSF Molecular Medicine Residency Program, Leader, Hematopoietic Malignancies Program, Helen Dilla Family Comprehensive Cancer Center, University of California, San Francisco. And Dr. Shah will be addressing new treatment approaches, clinical trial updates, how clinical trials increase your treatment options, and survivorship and the importance of treatment summaries. It's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Shah. Thank you. Thank you very much, Carolyn. Thank you, everyone, for, for joining today. Um, so the first thing I want to discuss is the topic of new treatment approaches. I'm often asked, you know, what's new in CML after these international meetings? Um, I think um, <clears throat> sort of I think it's been clear for a number of years that, that there's actually um, thankfully, you know, less need for new treatment approaches because, as, as Dr. Morrow mentioned, we have at this moment five approved uh, therapies, four of which are approved uh, for for frontline usage, meaning for newly diagnosed patients. Um, that the, and those four seem to be reasonably safe and well tolerated and effective to where we expect the vast majority of um, the, the overwhelming majority of CML uh, patients to, to have uh, a normal lifespan um, or for them. Or in other words, we don't expect CML to be uh, something that, that shortens the duration of, of the life in the, in the vast majority of cases, certainly of chronic phase CML cases. Um, so that has, you know, made it more challenging to come up with a pressing need for new therapies. Now, one area that I will say that, that is uh, in need of new therapies, or we think uh, is 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 the is the area of uh, of one particular drug-resistant mutation, um, which is resistant to the to the the four drugs that have been approved for frontline usage, but is uh, very sensitive to panatinib. 
Um, uh, at the moment, however, penatinib um, is, is reserved uh, largely for people who either have that mutation or for whom uh, all of the other uh, treatments are not an option because of either uh, lack of efficacy or, or, or just uh, or, or, or significant toxicities from, from, from them. But so the number of people who are currently taking penatinib is relatively small, but some people unfortunately cannot tolerate penatinib. And so if they have this drug-resistant mutation, um, it would be great if there are other therapies that we could offer. And just in general terms, um, in my clinical experience, certainly um, I have quite a few patients who, um, for quality of life reasons, uh, want to um, try a different drug. They're responding perhaps very well to their current treatment, but they're having some bothersome toxicity um, that, that we have difficulty managing. And so having more treatment options uh, in general is always, of course, a great thing. And so there are actually um, at least three or four drugs that are generally in the same class, these tyrosine kinase inhibitors, these are pills that people take that are undergoing clinical trial development. And um, one of these um, is, um, uh, is uh, a Siminib. Um, it's also known as AVIL001. This has been uh, in clinical trial evaluation for quite some time. It does have um, substantial activity. Because of its mechanism of action, is slightly different in terms of how it binds to the target, uh, which is BCR-ABLE1. Um, there's hope that it may be associated with fewer side effects. Now, that, that remains to be formally determined in larger clinical trials, but the early clinical trial evidence is really quite encouraging that patients, uh, the, the response of patients, and again, for ethical reasons, um, people who come on this, these investigational studies have to have really compelling reasons for why they cannot be treated with um, a current, uh, currently available medication. Um, but the vast majority of, of patients seem to be tolerating the drug, you know, quite well, and, and, and there have been, you know, the majority of patients have had deep responses, including patients that have that particular drug-resistant mutation I, I alluded to earlier, known as the T315I mutation. Um, <clears throat> so we're hopeful <clears throat> that this drug will be... Um, We'll continue to move forward and will hopefully be approved in the not too distant future. Um, there is also there are also two to three other drugs that are in the, in the typical tyrosine kinase inhibitor mold. Um, I'd say the one that's probably um, gotten um, the farthest along is a drug from China um, that's undergone clinical uh, development uh, only in China to date. Uh, but the data that have been presented at the meetings um, suggests that it is quite active with over 60 or 70 percent of patients uh, achieving um, a deep response, um, including patients with the T315I mutation. The tolerability of this, um, the, the, this drug may, uh, we, don't, we, don't, we haven't seen uh, enough granular data on it at the moment, and I should point out that patients who came on, on the study with this drug um, had to meet very uh, relatively strict um, eligibility criteria. They could not come on if they had significant cardiovascular disease. I think really for concern that this drug may have the potential um, to uh, be associated with an increased risk of cardiovascular disease because it is very similar to penathenib, which um, is the one approved drug that is active against the T315I mutation but seems to have an increased risk of cardiovascular disease. Um, so this drug is, is, is not so surgical in, its, in the sense that it doesn't highly, highly, in a highly focused manner target BCR-ABL1, but nonetheless the activity reported to date certainly looks very encouraging. So we'll wait to, see, to learn more about that. Um, there's another drug that's being developed largely in, uh, in uh, Russia called PF114 um, that has not undergone evaluation in as many patients, but there have been um, some deep responses uh, observed uh, in, in, in these patients. And there's also one other drug um, from Sun Pharmaceuticals that's undergoing development for which there's been less uh, presented to date. But so the, we have a number of these uh, options coming down the pipeline. Um, and so one thing I would like to say is, um, of course, every drug that we have that's approved, all these game-changing drugs for CML, we're only, uh, it's only been made possible 
by the participation of patients in clinical trials. So I strongly encourage people to continue to try to see if there are clinical trials for, for which they may qualify. So one of the things, one of the areas of active investigation right now involves, you know, how do we deepen responses? And some people that have good responses, but they want to maybe even get deeper so that they can have a chance to actually stop treatment. We have learned that some patients who are in a very stable, deep remission um, are able to stop their treatment, and half the time it appears that, it would, that after at least five years and more that there's no need for them to, to, to go back on therapy. We hope, we're hopeful that will last for decades or, or lifelong. That remains to be seen. But there are studies designed to try to deepen the responses in more people so that more people can, um, can have the luxury of trying to go off therapy if they're interested in doing so. Um, so the last thing I want to talk about in the remaining minute or two is um, the importance of, um, of um, uh, uh, treatment uh, summaries and survivorship. So um, treatment summaries are um, basically really critical for patients to have, not, not a whole lot of detail, but useful information for patients to educate themselves on can be, uh, can be very nicely captured in a treatment summary. There are some forms that are available, such as through the American Society of Clinical Oncology, but in many cases, these really should be tailored for CML. Um, and, um, you know, the important things are typically, um, you know, what is the BCR-ABLE transcript level doing over time? What is the dose of the drug they are on? Um, if they develop resistance, is it because they have a drug-resistant mutation? Have people looked at that? Is it, um, have they had a follow-up bone marrow biopsy? These days, most people just have a bone marrow biopsy, a diagnosis, and then that's, that's all that we need. It's very uncommon that people need follow-up bone marrow biopsies, but, but these can be very valuable, not only for uh, the patient, but also for their caregivers to sort of, you know, look and review with them, and it can help formulate and answer questions and, uh, and, and maybe in some cases provide clarification for, uh, for, for what uh, the next treatment step should be. Um, and then the last thing I'll talk about briefly is survivorship. Now, um, of course, um, the ultimate goal um, is, is uh, to not only uh, provide people with uh, or change this into a, a manageable chronic condition, uh, but also to be one that is associated with as few side effects as possible and maximize quality of life. And um, there are also, it is important for all of us to keep this, you know, on the radar as far as, uh, as, far as what we are, are, are trying to achieve and, and, and to also to keep in mind whether there are later or long-term toxicities that are, that are occurring. And so keeping, you know, a, a careful uh, a, a diary or something of your symptoms over time can be very uh, informative um, to, um, to this, as well as um, you can, um, you know, tailor it so that um, you can, you know, know what to expect in terms of when your follow-up testing is going to occur and, um, and, uh, and then other, um, you know, ideas that there may be for, you know, improving, improving your health. Um, so I'll stop there, and um, and uh, we'll have time for some questions a little bit later. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Shaw. That was outstanding and really wonderful presentation, and really um, a lot of very important information for people to carry with them. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q and A as well. And our next speaker is Dr. Elias Jabor. Dr. Jabor is Professor, Department of Leukemia, Division of Cancer Medicine, the University of Texas, MD Anderson Cancer Center. And Dr. Jabor will be addressing adherence or taking your pills on schedule, managing post-treatment side effects, late effects, and benefits of follow-up care, including guidelines to prepare for telemedicine, telehealth appointments. It's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Jabor. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. Thank you, Dr. Master, for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here today with you, as well as with Dr. Shah and Dr. Morrow participating in this uh, webinar. Uh, I hope all you're safe, uh, you and your families, and doing well during this pandemic. Uh, my talk is uh, about adherence, uh, long-term side effect, and communication with uh, telemedicine and all these guidelines. You've heard from Dr. Shah and Dr. Morrow that CML patients today can expect to have 
normal lifespan. So we live normally. It's like hypertension, but for that, we need to take the medicine, the pill, every day. Uh, compliance is a major issue. Studies have been done and have shown if we're not compliant at the 95% of the situation, we will not reach the optimal milestone that can secure a normal lifespan. So it's really important to take the medicine every single day without missing. And to take it every day, it's best to schedule a time that is suitable to each one of you, uh, maybe morning or evening, but try to respect this time and take medicine on time. You've heard Dr. Shah talk about the dairies and the summaries. So if, if that's helping you, put a dairy and follow your schedule and take your patient every day because we know that an optimal exposure to the medicine will secure a long-term, the best long-term outcome. So please, again, uh, take your medicine on schedule, take it daily, do not miss your medicine. No, certain drugs are given twice a day, others are given once a day. Whatever you feel comfortable with, whatever your doctor is prescribing, stick to it. Some people say, I like once a day regimen, others prefer twice a day regimen. I prefer once a day, but if that is your doctor's decision with you after discussing it with you, so please uh, take your medicine on schedule. Now, once we start skipping the medicine, the outcome is worse. And the major reason why we skip medicine is because we have side effects. And we feel like it's a chronic disease. If I don't feel comfortable, I will drop my medicine today and I will do it tomorrow and I will repeat it over and over again. At the end of the day, I will lose my response and that will be bad. So it's really important to communicate with your doctor, your healthcare providers, uh, what to expect, what side effects you're encountering, what you can see, what's happening. Because if we can help you optimizing your side effect by adjusting the dose, by reducing the dose, by picking another drug, that will help your compliance and make sure that you will get the milestones responses met as early as possible. So I will start with the communication. Number two is some side effects are expected to happen early on, uh, such as myelosuppression or low count, and therefore doing a blood test weekly at the beginning and frequently at the beginning, it's helpful to predict to hold the drug resume once the side effect has fully recovered. Other side effects can happen at the long run or they can happen in a very unexpected way. Uh, for example, uh, we do see pleural effusion happening with dazatinib, and that can happen three years on therapy or later. So if you have shortness of breath, for example, you must talk to your healthcare providers who will advise you what to do by holding the drug, give some drugs to help you with the fluid retention, and eventually resume at a lower dose. So again, communication about side effects, uh, the early one, the late one. Sometimes we do see, for example, clear uh, the kidneys taking a hit on a drug, and sometimes a holiday is needed, or sometimes we have to hold the drug, and that will recover very nicely, but you need to communicate with your uh, physicians. We do see, for example, skin depigmentation on a drugs as well. These are all manageable. Now, fortunately, with the drugs we have, we always have a margin of to 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 adjust the dose of the drug. These drugs are approved at a very optimal dose, but we know as well that if we give a lower dose, we can still optimize efficacy uh, and safety, so we don't make a compromise here. So a good communication uh, eventually will lead to dose adjustment. Maybe your body does not tolerate the full dose. Lower dose will be good to you to adjust the side effect and make sure you have the best uh, long-term outcome. So communication, communication, communication. That will bring me uh, to the last part of my uh, short talk is about uh, the guidelines, what we have today with telemedicine. You know, with the COVID pandemics, we learned a lot uh, how to do medicine. Things we did not used to do, we do it right now. Uh, we can communicate better with our patients. Still, it doesn't replace the physical contact. But, for example, I live in Houston, and my patient used to travel to see me once every six months or every three months. Uh, of course, now, with, they cannot travel because of the pandemic and the risk of exposures, but we can do telemedicine uh, more frequently. Uh, we can schedule more 
frequent phone calls where we can discuss uh, what's happening. We, patients will have to do his homework, so we'll ask him to prepare for these phone calls, uh, to have the lab test ready for them, uh, to have the side effects ready to, to share with me, whether they have a put a, a summary note, but be prepared. And my nurse usually call in advance to make sure that the patient is ready. And then we can have a phone call or a video call. We'll be very productive. Of course, there will be no physical exam. But then we can follow up closely on what's going on. We can follow up on a side effect. We can follow up on a PCR test. We can follow up on a CBC and try to adjust the treatment accordingly. So, Yes, we do not need to have many travels or it will decrease the cost of traveling, for example. Uh, we can have more frequent follow-up. Uh, and then eventually, if we see side effect, even subtle, or we can see patients losing their response, we can act rapidly instead of waiting for a three-month visit to come back to Houston or to go to San Francisco or New York or anywhere you want to adjust the treatment. So I think the COVID pandemic is helping us adjusting our treatment strategy, our behavior, how to deal with the patient. And I think it will optimize the follow-up rather than having one call or one visit every two to six months and then go home you're on your own. I think really it's really helpful. The guidelines, I think, be prepared, get your blood test done in advance, have a call with the nurse or some people of the team because still we're trying to optimize the media and the, the ITs and all things. But I think it will lead to a lot of things. Finally, from the side effect and the COVID, in Houston, we were spared at least MD Anderson where we did not get the surge that Dr. Morrow had in New York. Uh, but we're, very, very care we're being very careful. And patients usually on CML, they are not at high risk of having the infection. Uh, but if somebody is infected, some drugs need to be taken into account. Uh, for example, we've seen sometimes with the COVID some diarrhea happening. And if somebody on a drug that can cause diarrhea, one should be watched carefully. We've seen uh, thrombotic events as well happening. So these are things we're, what we're seeing them. Not so often, fortunately, uh, but we're learning on the job and we're trying to optimize the safety of the drugs. To summarize, therefore, Really, adherence, adherence, adherence is the key to succeed, to have the best long-term outcome. Uh, why we're not adherent? First and foremost, because of side effects. So trying to optimize side effect management, either early or late side effect, it's a must to optimize adherence. Uh, I will add something about the financial uh, burden. There are a lot of programs that can help for people who are in need, who cannot afford the price of this medicine to get free drug and try to talk to your doctors, to your uh, team about helping you getting medicine if not available and do not get a period where you don't have this medicine available. And finally, we have great benefit from having virtual visits in order to optimize supportive care and make sure adherence is uh, respected. I will stop here and I will be happy to join my colleagues during the panel and the Q&A. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Jafur. That was really excellent. And, and I think one, a point that you made that actually I think um, people often forget is that sometimes when you're meeting with your physician, your healthcare team, um, people are often reluctant to mention that they're having financial concerns or worries. And I think the fact that you've identified this as an issue that people should bring up with their physician so that the physician can be aware of it and involve those members of the team that can really help to resolve that. So thank you for doing that. That's really very important. Um, I actually am going to just... Uh, we're going to take questions in just a minute, but I want to say a few words about the services you can access from Cancer Care, and then we're going to take questions, so please uh, get ready with your questions, and we're happy to take as many of them as possible. Um, I'm Carolyn Messner. I'm an oncology social worker here, and I am a I'm director of education and training at Cancer Care. And Cancer Care offers a comprehensive array of services for people uh, living with uh, CML and with all cancers, and those services include uh, practical and financial assistance, um, as well as uh, an opportunity to talk with one of our oncology social workers about your concerns, um, or joining a support group or an online support group, or listening to one of these programs, these education programs, or accessing one of our publications. We have many publications, but you can access as many as you want, actually. Um, and you can access as many other services that you wish. In other words, if you if you need 
I would say financial assistance, it doesn't mean that you then can't do something else. You can, there's a whole array of services and you can take all the services that you need, if that makes sense to all of you. There's no restriction on the amount of services that you can access at any time. And um, also to contact Cancer Care, many people just contact our HOPE line, which is uh, 1-800-813-4673, or you can visit our website at www.cancercare.org, and you can post your question, and one of our oncology social workers will get back to you um, and address your questions or concerns and provide those services to you. Um, so again, depending on where you live uh, also, and depending on also your comfort with either the telephone or going to the website, um, either will be able to allow you to access those services. Now, with that being said, we now are ready for questions. I'm going to ask Norma to bring all of our speakers on board, and we're going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. So um, Norma will explain to you how to queue up for questions, and um, we'll let the questions begin. Norma? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then 1 on your touchtone telephone. If your question has been answered or you wish to remove yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Again, ladies and gentlemen, to ask a question, please press star 1. And we have a question in front of our online participants. Um, so... Um, So it's a question, um, I'm going to ask Dr. Morrow if you could address this. It's a long question, I'm going to try to abbreviate it a bit. Um, I'm, I'm on to Cigna for CML, diagnosed in 2012, having numerous ongoing side effects, both short and long term. Um, took a three-month drug vacation, um, came out of remission, um, and we started to Cigna. Um, and, uh, in 2020, um, on restarting, the TKI had um, bone pain um, for approximately 10 to 12 weeks. Um, is that normal? Could you address that question, um, Dr. Morrow? Sure, Karen. So, so that sounds like a, a bit of a, a typical mixture where we see um, some intolerance to medications, whether it was side effects that led to the treatment holiday or the treatment cessation, and also led um, to a question about what do we do next, given that with rechallenge, there's other side effects. I think nilotinib is, you know, one of the more potent second-generation TKIs and has some predictable side effects, has some cardiovascular concerns, has musculoskeletal complaints, um, some other, other things that are a little bit more prominent with that drug. Um, but Dr. Shah, I think, covered this um, in his section that, you know, we have multiple medications and the flexibility to look at the dose and the medication to try to find the best fit so we can maintain response and um, but yet a high quality of life and, and hopefully continue on, you know, with an optimal treatment plan. So if someone was on one drug, stopped it, uh, maybe kind of deliberately um, for side effects, which then with rechallenge, side effects came back and that was maybe appropriate timing, maybe not. It's hard to know about treatment cessation and and whether that was going to be successful, meaning the leukemia would stay in remission off treatment, that may not have been the appropriate timing and, and, and the disease state indicated a need for retreatment again. That looks like a situation where you'd want to say, what other medications are available? What other doses, of, in addition to not just the drugs, but the doses could be tried to recapture response and minimize side effects? Uh, if you've tried one medication and haven't had success staying on it to get into remission, from which you could stop that drug, or if you've had re repeated side effects, that may be a time to look at other medications. And there are two other drugs in the second generation class which could be considered, you know, desantinib and basudinib are in the same family as nilonib, um, and, and manib um, may, may still be reasonable too, uh, or Gleevec. Um, we, we often reserve panantinib, as, as I think my colleagues mentioned, you know, for highly resistant cases or T315I mutation. And it also offers some optimism that new drugs are on the horizon, which could be of benefit. Excellent. Thank you. And does anyone want to add anything to that, Dr. Shah, Dr. Shabor? Okay. All right. Excellent. Okay. And the question um, for 
um, Dr. Shah, um, is CML hereditary? Um, I don't know if my children are at high risk for getting CML later in life. Yeah, so thank you for the question. Um, so to the best of our knowledge, well, so there's no evidence that, that CML is hereditary. Now, it, it, it happens, the, the incidence is like one to two people per 100,000 per year. Um, so there are rare cases where, so it's not the most common leukemia, so there are rare cases where, um, you know, somebody whose parent maybe had CML also developed CML, but that's not because of any, um, anything that was inherited, it just, it's just, you know, it's just, uh, it's just chance. Um, so, so, and I should also say that to the best of our knowledge, um, if an individual is diagnosed with CML, his or her uh, relatives, children um, are not at any increased risk of, of developing CML. Um, and, and also, I counsel patients that, um, to the best of our knowledge at the present time, um, there is no compelling uh, evidence that, that, be after, that, that having a diagnosis of CML puts anybody at a higher risk of developing any secondary, any additional cancers. Now, it doesn't, of course, prevent you from developing additional cancers, but we certainly don't, um, have, we don't see any compelling links at the moment uh, between um, development of CML and development of other cancers. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and a uh, question uh, for, uh, for Dr. Um, Jabour. Um, my husband is losing a great deal of weight, and I'm worried about him. Um, he doesn't seem to have much appetite nowadays. Um, now, this is, a, of course, a very personal question, but Dr. Jabour, are there guidelines or um, suggestions that you might have for this caller in terms of um, how this might be approached. Okay, well, uh, if the patient is with CML on TKI, losing weight, uh, need to be have a follow-up because having weight loss more than 10%, unless it's intentional, it's not normal. Uh, so I will assess the disease response, and I will see what's going on, see what is the response already obtained. You know, I do a workup to see because it may not be due to CML. Somebody in CML having a normal lifespan can have other reasons to have a weight loss, whether it's an endocrine problems or other systemic issues. So I really encourage these patients to follow up with the doctor uh, to assess the disease response and do a workup that can come up with a differential diagnosis why the weight loss is being observed because it's, it can be and it's very likely not to be related to the TKIs. And if it is Thank TKIs, you. then one again should rule out progression or transformation. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and there's another question here actually for Dr. Shabor. It's on um, the person is I'm concerned about there being on painkillers for bone pain. Um, and I feel uh, like I need the medicine but don't want to get addicted to taking the drugs or build up a tolerance. Um, what can I do to manage the pain but avoid addiction and development of tolerance? You know, with CML and TKIs, we rarely see bone pain, or the bone pain are really minor. We did see muscle aches with uh, imatinib, but with other TKIs, we rarely see these kind of side effects. Uh, for this, we recommend hydration, 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 uh, and stay away as much as possible of the painkiller because, as the patient already said, I don't want to get addicted, and we do see addiction to these painkillers. So I think uh, uh, hydration, uh, gatherate, uh, make sure you're having a good lights or healthy diet, and eventually exercise and physiotherapy, but I will not go into drug addiction and narcotics. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you very much. And did I want to add to that? Okay, thank you. Um, so for Dr. Morrow, is there such a thing as an ideal candidate for stem cell transplantation? Um, is there anything I can do in terms of lifestyle that will improve the likelihood of success for a transplant? Not to... Uh, a topic we don't talk about as much um, with CML in the current era, but certainly an important one still. Um, and 
I think it might highlight the fact that we have to realize that that is still a tool and a treatment option for patients with CML. It's a very effective option. It can be a curative option, much like the functional cure we're aiming with for treatment uh, with treatment free remission after TKIs. But the person's asking about um, how can you how can you optimize your chances for success for allogeneic stem cell transplantation? Um, if someone's been advised that that's the best course of action, um, there aren't um, things that one can do looking backwards. But of course, I mean, the best place to be entering transplant is with good information that that's the best treatment option, with uh, hopefully CML under control, um, with side effects well um, explained in all your healthcare concerns and health uh, issues known to your provider so they can be managed and anticipated. Um, but it's fairly intuitive. I mean, if you're uh, about to undergo a you know, rigorous medical procedure like an allogeneic transplant, I think you want to uh, be in as, as good a uh, physical and also a mental health state as possible to make sure you're confident with your treatment plan and you've settled um, things. It's a bit of an off-topic suggestion, but I always suggest Making a decision about allogeneic transplant, I think you know having um, multiple opinions or going for a second opinion is often a really good thing to do, just to if you can. Um, and nowadays that can be done maybe easier, especially with telehealth, as we were talking about. Um, not sure how many transplant centers uh, how that's utilized, but um, think about that. Um, and um, and the decision to undergo transplant CML is not taken as often as it was before, but. I don't want someone to feel like they're an outlier or just the unlucky one. I mean, there are still many cures and many successes that can happen with transplant CMO when TKIs, or medications we focus mostly on today, aren't the long, best long-term solution or haven't been effective, and it's best done before we're facing a higher risk form of CML, like advanced phase CML. Awesome. Thank you. Um, and um, a question for Dr. Shah, for Dr. Shah. are there any, um, uh, from one of our participants, um, are there any fertility issues associated with CML therapy for men and women? Yeah, so one of the, I think one of the positive benefits of the fact that we now predict that people, um, you know, the CML is not likely to, to, to impact significantly one's lifespan or at all um, uh, is that younger people who are diagnosed um, who maybe in the old days would have not uh, would have thought there was too much uncertainty to have children now they of course you know want to live life to the fullest and um, as far as the drugs and impacts on fertility that specific issue um, there have not been glaring signals of that. There have been some very rare reports of, say, like in men who are taking the one of these medications, um, you know, a possible low sperm count. But I, I'm not. That can be difficult to um, to. Uh, there've been there've been I should say like single case reports of that. Um, but in terms of the the, the overall um, picture, at least with men. Certainly, there does not seem to be any uh, significant signal, and um, so currently we counsel men who are interested in fathering children that there's no reason to be concerned either about the issue of fertility or um, or uh, the, the the likelihood of uh, or increased risk of of, of birth defects in, in in the child. Um, with women, um, certainly, just to speak to to fertility first for a moment. Um, to the best of my knowledge, the drugs don't uh, impact uh, fertility, um, uh, but, you know, I, I certainly have one patient who's, um, who's been struggling and, and, and uh, undergoing uh, in vitro, um, uh, going, undergoing attempts for egg retrieval, and, um, you know, people have raised the question as to whether, you know, one of the, the, the drugs that she's on is, is hitting another target that may be um, negatively impacting the ability to um, to, uh, to, to to satisfactory for, for the eggs to, to, to successfully mature and be retrieved, um, but I, I would say certainly there have been many women who um, have inadvertently become pregnant while uh, on one of these medications, and I stress inadvertently because it is not recommended, it is not thought to be safe to be taking these medications while one is uh, attempt while a woman is attempting to conceive um, uh, because of uh, uh, evidence that there may be a higher uh, rate of, of, of birth defects um, in, in children who are exposed 
uh, in the uterus. So, um, so that that's a little bit of a separate question and a longer discussion. But I'll just I'll just end my my, my answer there. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, and a question um, for Dr. Jabor: Can CML progress to AML? Uh, well, yes, CML has three phases, mostly chronic phase, 85% of the patients, and then we have the ultimate stage called blast phase, and the blast phase can be myeloblast phase uh, or lymphoblast phase or uh, mix of both, uh, and the worst outcome is seen in a myeloblast phase disease, which is the AML, but AML is, doesn't have the Philadelphia chromosome. We know that the outcome of this patient when they go into transformation myeloblast phase is really bad and the survival on average is one year, and these patients will need a transplant to be done, an aggressive approach. This is why it's really important to keep the disease in a chronic phase and never let it transform, because we know the outcome is bad once it's transforming. Therefore, I reiterate compliance is a major uh, factor to optimize the response and therefore prevent this uh, transformation from happening. Thank you. Thank you. And... Um... So a question also for um, for Dr. Morrow: Can leukemia be acquired through a blood transfusion? Um, wow, you guys are coming up with some really good <laughs> questions for us today. Um, <laughs> is <it> really? <laughs> yes. Well, um, I think the first comment to say is that um, when folks are screened to be blood donors, um, patients with leukemia histories, um, and particularly anyone with active leukemia, is excluded. Um, so that's first off, and blood transfusions are devoid for the, you know, fu functionally with filtering and things um, done um, of leukocytes that are um, generally the cells that are involved in leukemia of all kinds, chronic and acute. Um, so, so the answer is generally no. Um, I think that's an interesting biologic question, um, but but the other thing to mention is that a blood transfusion, although it's 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 matched for blood type. Um, the cells that are are uh, responsible for leukemia, whether it's in yourself or could be coming from another person, um, are white blood cells, and they have specific things on their surfaces which the immune system recognizes. So um, there would not be a lot of friendly communication or uh, hospitality for blood cells um, in, in, in either direction. There could be um, hostile behavior on either side of the equation. So leukocytes are generally eliminated, not part, and, and donors are screened. So thank, thank goodness that's not a, not a concern. Excellent. Thank you. And a question for Dr. Shah. Um, again, this was another interesting question. Um, um, are there any um, suggestions for avoiding chemo brain from CML medication treatments? Um, yeah. Any so, thoughts I mean, I about that? that? Sure, sure. Thank you. Um, so, I mean, I think the, a term that a lot of patients describe or use to describe what they're experiencing on these drugs is mental fog. Now, I want to say first and foremost that this is reversible, meaning that there have been patients who, you know, stop therapy um, maybe because they're in a deep remission or if they want to just see if, the, if what they're experiencing is, is drug-related, we'll have them stop therapy for a couple of weeks. Um, and then it clears up. Um, um, so it's not, you shouldn't be concerned that this is an irreversible um, uh, toxicity. Um, but, you know, in terms of how I attempt to manage it, I, and by and large, it, it comes down to um, taking advantage of the fact that we have multiple drugs. And we can also modify doses. So especially if someone is responding well and if we're continuing to monitor them carefully, we can feel in many cases that we can decrease the dose um, and still maintain good control of the disease and, uh, and, and minimize uh, some of these side effects. In, in, in some cases, um, you know, when that's, when that's not possible, I can say that I've used things specifically to uh, improve uh, mental um, acuity, but um, certainly uh, I think many of us have used for, for some of these drugs that cause fatigue 
um, uh, if there's nothing, you know, if we don't have an option, if the patients are still having, you know, profound fatigue, um, it's not so much an issue for, for CML that you can't find a drug that, that spares that, but there are some people for whom that happens, but certainly in other diseases that we sometimes treat with tyrosine kinase inhibitors like myelofibrosis, fatigue can be a, uh, a, a persistent um, um, side effect, and we don't have many treatment options in that disease. So uh, in some cases, we'll use drugs um, like modafinil or things like that, which can also, I think, probably also help with mental, mental acuity as well. But uh, as I said, for my, 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 uh, my approach is generally to either reduce the, the dose or, or, or try switching if that's an option. Excellent. Thank you. And this will be our last question, um, and this is for Dr. Um, Jabour. How often should a CML patient anticipate having a bone marrow aspiration or biopsy? Uh, great question. Well, we don't do it anymore. I will do a bone marrow at the beginning, a diagnosis, and then I will follow my patient with a blood test, PCR, and eventually fish testing. I would like to repeat a bone marrow once eventually, and that's controversial, once the fish testing is below 5%. And after that, I will not repeat a bone marrow. I will follow my patient on a PCR every three months. Now, at any time, I have a loss of response. Let's say the PCR is gradually increasing, and this is consistent. I will repeat a bone marrow to assess the karyotype and other features. So essentially when I'm suspecting a transform, uh, loss of response or progression. So I will do it at the baseline, at the time of loss of response, and eventually at one year from the beginning just to be on a safe side. Excellent. Well, thank you. I want to thank uh, all of you, uh, outstanding speakers, really, today on today's program. And a really interesting Wonderful participants, I have to say, asking really such really interesting questions, wonderful questions, actually. So we had a great combination here of great speakers and great participants who queued up and uh, asked questions online. Um, so I do want to thank all of you for your participation today. And I do recognize that there are many more questions in queue, so I do want to actually uh, relate to that, first of all. Um, so um, for those of you who continue to have questions um, about, you know, well, you may have learned something today. We hope you've learned something today, actually, um, that you will take whatever you've learned. If you asked a question today or if you heard another person's question and you still want to take all that information back to your treating healthcare team because they know, of course, everything about you. So that's really important that um, you take, you always go back to your healthcare team with questions. Um, we don't ever want to sidestep your healthcare team. On the other hand, we also know that many of you like to go to credible resources to get information. And so credible resources are very important. Um, you know, so not going perhaps to a blog to get your information, but really going to well-respected sites to get your information. And so for that, we, we actually will, all of you are going to get an evaluation after today's program. And it usually comes within two days of the program. And your evaluation, we also, of course, want your feedback. What we also provide in the evaluation is all the references or all the organizations that could offer you help and support. There are many organizations out there that have very well-respected websites that actually contain really good information for you, like the National Cancer Institute, of course. They're a great resource both the, they have an 800 number, which we'll provide, and they also have a live chat feature on their website, a great place to just get information. Then their information specialists will check their databases and will give you back information. And it's kind of a live chat box that they have, which is really, many people find that useful, both in the U.S. and internationally. And in addition to that, there are a number of other organizations that we will be uh, sort of providing for you as references to get, you know, to get updated information, medical information. But again, everything needs to be run past your healthcare team. That's really important. Um, in addition to that, for those of you who wish to seek any of the services from Cancer Care, you can simply call us um, on our, um, our hope line or you can um, visit our website, and our oncology social work staff be happy to try to assist you in getting direct help from us or in referring you to places that can provide help. And um, again, uh, so there are a lot of places that there are really hundreds of organizations out there that can provide help and support to each of you. 
Um, and uh, I would be remiss not to mention the Leukemia Lymphoma Society as another amazing organization that has all types of resources for you as well. So we will be providing all that information for you um, when you, um, after the program, you'll be getting all the different organizations that we suggest that you might want to contact for information. So I want to thank you all for your participation today. And most importantly, as we conclude the program today, I do not want any one of you um, to feel alone in coping with CML or any type of cancer leukemia. I want you to know that you're part of a very large community of support. It is normal to feel alone sometimes. So I'm pleased I, I do understand that many people feel alone all the time. And particularly now with social isolation, people feel a little bit more alone depending on where you are in the country. However, um, and social distancing, rather. The social distancing has really contributed a little bit to people feeling more alone to some extent. Uh, nevertheless, we do want you to know that there are lots of places out there that you can contact by phone. Um, we've heard about the telemedicine appointments with your healthcare team. Um, and so we do want you to know that, and there are a lot of organizations you can call as well. So I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.